what is a cycle? Some people will go as far as to call a cycle a generational curse. But in all actuality, it is something that shows up through generations. Nobody has to tell you about it. Nobody has to point it out. Nobody has to gear you to it. It is something that you gravitate to. We don't see the beginning, but a lot of times we get caught up in the circle of things. Our next guest, Lakeisha Lewis, is going to talk to us about the cycles that happened in her life. She's a therapist, um, and in her profession, she sees cycles from the criminal aspect, the victim aspect, but then also, privately, she's learned to identify cycles in her own life. Join us next as we listen to Cycles. Good morning, Sippers. It's me, Felicia, and you are listening to Salt Tea. This morning, we have Lakeisha Lewis, who is going to talk to us about mental health and everyday life. She has been a therapist for seven years and mainly works with persons who have been identified and convicted of sexual crimes. In light of the recent attention given to uh, sex trafficking and the rise in minorities, especially black women being abducted, uh, abducted, um, leaving little to no trace, I thought that it would be a good use of time to discuss the profiles to be aware of. Okay, so welcome to Sip Tea and Salt Tea dot blog and Salt Tea. <laughs> we got we're going to be up on a lot of platforms. I'm getting all kinds of information about that. But thank you for coming. Um, thank you very and thank much. You for giving, yeah, thank you for giving us your time. So you're a therapist, and your job is working with male sex offenders. Is that difficult, considering that you are a woman? At first, I um, I thought it was going to be extremely difficult uh, because of being a female as well as uh, my prior history. But I was able to, uh, thank goodness, thank God, uh, able to meet and speak with a person, another woman, who was retiring out of the field because a friend of mine kept suggesting that it would be a good fit for me. And... Um, after talking to her about how she was able to work through and work with this um, population, I chose to do it, and it has been – it is it's not been the easiest, but it's been a really, really good experience overall, a lot of learning about others, about um, things that can contribute to the mindset of a person that um, commits sexual offenses. Um a lot of insight just about how some things that we may not identify as being significant could really be impactful to the way people even interact with the opposite sex or the same sex. Because I, the biggest obstacle I have faced is uh, because I uh, primarily uh, have worked with adult males and juvenile males is that um, the the women issues. Mm-hmm. that they have and how those even contribute to some of their offenses, whether it's against so, a 
female or male. Yes, ma'am. So you mentioned some women issues. Can you expound upon that? What do you mean with their women issues? Uh, with the women issues, many um, people that I have worked with have dealt with issues dealing with, uh, of course, mother figures uh, being either abusive, whether it's physically, verbally, sexually, um, being rejected by women, whether it's people of the same age, even uh, feeling rejected by um, grandmothers, um, aunts, just women in general, and how they will generalize that across the board to any and every encounter they have with women or females, um, mm -hmm. especially um, during when uh, children go into their teen years and they're trying to identify, you know, where do I fit and mm -hmm. how do I start relationships. It contributes a lot in that um, if they're rejected, especially by someone they they have thought a lot about or are infatuated with, um, that can contribute to a lot of negative thinking that uh, that can lead to difficult situations with other with the opposite sex. So, do you think that? Everybody goes through a period where their expectation is not met. So do you believe that these people who feel rejection and aren't able to respond to that rejection already have some kind of precursor or they already have some type of uh, uh, sensitivity to this particular mental illness and that triggers it? Or do you believe that everybody is, or every person is in a position where they may uh, be sensitive and may find themselves in this, this in this choice? Well, that's kind of a loaded question. Uh, the thing is, as far as with rejection, if um, if a person, regardless of age, has the appropriate outlet to discuss and process that rejection they tend not to generalize it across the board and are able to usually identify, hey, that was that one person or that one situation, and it's mm -hmm. not everybody. However, okay. a lot of the impact comes from family dynamics that I've seen, and usually in those negative family dynamics, is either reinforced or inappropriate, um, sexual contact, negative uh, sexual roles, deviant sexual encounters, things like that. So okay. there's a lot that goes into that. Okay. Um, now, when you are talking, I know you deal with um, people who have been convicted of sexual crimes. Are most of the cases that you come across, are they cases where they are identifying strangers or have these types of offenders developed a more personal strategy? Actually, um, the people that I work with, both adult and juvenile, um, they have had issues with both uh, family as well as strangers. And it again kind of goes back to the family dynamic that they uh, that they are born into and that they come from. Um, with that being said, um, when they when they have a family dynamic that supports 
inappropriate and deviant sexual encounter um, that uh, then becomes usually it looks like um, older children or adults are acting out toward children and other adults mm-hmm. in the family. And so, therefore, that behavior is reinforced because that becomes what their normal is. And they mm-hmm. feel like this really isn't inappropriate or deviant because this is what I see every day. This is my normal. Mm-hmm. And so when those people grow up, and if they are not caught before they grow up, because I know you said you work with juveniles, so they get to get past and they don't do anything or they don't get caught or they're juveniles and they become adults, do they typically, uh, are they more inclined to be able to fit into society where women would not necessarily know that they are with a predator? And if that's the case, what are some of the things that they do uh, to pick out the people who would be more susceptible to be becoming victims? Oftentimes, uh, depending on what they have identified as their easiest mode to gain contact with victims, especially depending on the type of victim they're looking for, um, they will seek out to look for a way to manipulate a weakness that they've identified or generalized um, that has gotten them to what their tar- target is for offenses. Um, if they specifically target children, they will generally begin to look for and identify traits in people that will be identified as single parents, single mothers. Um, The father is not in the home or has a negative relationship with the mother, and they will then um, target and focus on trying to appear to be a positive replacement for the the male figure that's not there in an attempt to gain access to the children and to build trust with the mother or female guardian even uh, to then say, hey, you know, I'm a safe person. I'll babysit or I'll go and do this with the kids or for the children. And it's almost like the person tries to come across as, for lack of better words, a lifesaver. Wow, that's that's scary. Um, I can only imagine, you know, being single in these days and times, especially when uh, you do have such a large uh, number of women who are single parents having to uh, still try to date in this era. That would be quite scary because you have those genuine people who are trustworthy, and I don't know that anybody – can identify when they're being deceived because that's the whole premise of being deceived. You're being, you don't know it. So uh, what are some tips or some warning signs that women should be aware of when they're meeting new people? I would say be very uh, cautious of um, men or women because it's not just men doing this. Men or women Mm -hmm. that are extremely focused on either wanting to meet your children or to become an extremely significant part of their lives very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, a person who seems to be try to present themselves as um, being able to or wanting to meet especially financial needs very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Someone that always makes themselves available uh, to uh, help with child care as far as Oh, don't worry. I, you know, I'll go pick the kids up or I'll go do this. 
anything that seems to be pushing your comfort level of being able to mm-hmm. trust someone. Um, even someone that's uh, extremely quick to um, offer advice on um, child discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. With child discipline, if if they are um, focused on trying to present themselves as the good guy, and you're mm-hmm. always the bad guy, that's mm-hmm. a that's a concern. That's mm-hmm. a concern. So you you know what you said there, it, it reminded me of a case that I read um, online a couple of days ago, where there was a woman, and I I don't remember exactly where, but. She was on trial. Well, she wasn't on trial. She pled guilty, and she got a reduced sentence. But her boyfriend, her living boyfriend, had uh, was beating her son, and I think he was uh, under the age of two. And they, the man was starving her child. And um, I know we were talking about sex offenders, but... Well, the reason I'm linking this to it is that it seems to be some desire for women to have that empty space filled to the point where maybe they're not even focused on how this is affecting their children and right. um, and having, you know, either different men or if not even different men, um, uh, dangerous men. And yes. maybe um, thinking this person is coming in and they're providing what is missing. I'm not a disciplinarian. So... So here this person is, and they're handling, they're, co- they're, they're carrying a weight that I don't want to carry. Um, and then I think that they get kind of twisted because maybe that person, like you said, is now carrying them financially. So now he, feel, he feels or she feels like they have the authority to be that, that disciplinarian. Well, the child was almost starved to death, but he was starved so bad that he was eating him out of the trash. Mm-hmm. And caught him eating out of the trash, and I think that they were still having some financial difficulties, and the little boy uh, was scared to go to the bathroom one night, and he uh, defecated in the in the living room yeah. and uh-huh. um, got in trouble for it, and the the boyfriend beat him with a broomstick. Yeah, and, I remember it. Yeah, yeah, and so they, I think they even, at one point, the man even hung the boy up on the door. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. and the and the mom, when she was asked in court, you know about all of these different things, her response was like, "Well, it was wrong for him to to boo-boo on the floor," you know. Right. And then she she left that situation, saw the child wasn't responding, and her comment to that because I think I asked her, "Well, why didn't you you know say anything when the kid wasn't responding?" Well, he's played, he's done this before, tried to pretend like there was something wrong. So we're talking about years of, of abuse or several instances of abuse. And um, I don't know how, even though we're giving out all of this advice, how do we, as a, as a community, begin to be seeing our friends, our girlfriends, our mothers, our sisters, who are really thirsty or really desirous of relationships that may be more susceptible to having these types of men and or women because we, like you said, it's, sometimes they're getting in abusive relationships with women. Um, how can we as a community begin to, to keen our eyes to see if someone is in a situation like this? I would suggest, um, especially if it's someone you're very close to, 
to just keep an open dialogue with them and don't do it in a way that is um, comes across as judgmental uh, mm-hmm. because of the simple fact that is the quickest way to get anyone to shut down about anything is to come across as judgmental because, you know, who wants judgment? But just to offer, you know, insight. Um, I noticed that, you know, this person seems to be always available to to watch these children or to want to step into a, an extreme, and I say extreme, either extreme nice or extreme aggressive role with your children. Um, even talk to your friends about, um, you know, what are they looking for in relationships and keep that mm-hmm. open whether they're in one or not so that way they are able to kind of keep an eye open and be mindful themselves because it ultimately comes to what that person feels like they're missing, uh, mm-hmm. what their person may be frustrated with. And also, if we can, just so that people who have negative intentions may not have a way in, if you can offer to babysit or offer to help out every now and again with a friend or family member that may be, you know, in a situation that could be easily exploited by someone with negative intentions, you know, offer to step in every now and again. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. even even babysitting doesn't include, you know, having a child for a whole week or, you know, two weeks or children. Just going over there and sitting and saying, hey, I bought a, a box of food, I bought some, I bought some, uh, some drinks or whatever, not, non-alcoholic, of course. <laughs> let's sit down and just hang out or <laughs> let's sit down and watch a movie, something. Because really what it is is parents, period, whether they're single or, or not, you need that minute of adult contact of someone that is a peer. And that type of interaction can relieve so much stress. So, so mm-hmm. much stress, and even small amounts. So just be mindful to check on each other. And if you see that that person may be in a situation that's not the best for them or their children, bring that to their attention mm-hmm. in a way, like I said, it's not judgmental, but that's direct, and give them mm-hmm. facts. Like, hey, I saw this and I see that. Oh, one thing that I didn't mention, too, is a person that seems to be overly affectionate, um, that's a that's an issue or someone that always wants to be in some type of physical contact with children, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of their age, because it's not just the small ones; it's the uh, prepubescent and pubescent children as well. Um, and we often don't think of uh, prepubescent and pubescent as a real target. Because we start thinking, oh, those children are bigger. They're getting, you know, this certain level of strength, physical strength. They know the difference between right and wrong. But we have to realize in an abusive situation, many times the children have the same deficit that Mm -hmm. that parent does. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. parent may be lacking uh, contact and wanting that physical attention and that child, regardless of the age or size, wants the same thing because they're not getting that from the parent because the parent doesn't have it to give. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when that inappropriate touch begins, 
of course, their gut feeling may say, yeah, this is not right. But without anyone else, because they don't know who to talk to because the other parent is enjoying this person so much, and maybe this is the first time they've smiled or laughed or, you know, felt like their parent has been happy, so they don't want to do anything to stop that happiness. Mm-hmm. So we That's have to be really ways. mindful. Right. That is a lot of for a child. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And if you have a, a relationship, especially with those children, as a, as a person that's not the parent or, or that's outside the home, talk to them about how do you feel about this person? And mm-hmm. not to then turn around and, you know, just say, now I'm going to go tell, you know, your parent. But talk to them about that. Get their insight. Because, I mean, I know it's a, a old saying, but usually children can figure folks out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. just watching their interaction, if they seem to back away from this person, um, if they reject this person, of course, you know, usually children don't just run to strangers. But after being around the person for a while, that child is still acting like that. That would be cause for concern to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense because, um, again, we have so many single parents, male and women and, and female, that um, – they're still people, they're still humans, so they want to have that companionship. And is it fair to say, okay, well, you just can't date, but, you know, you don't, and then you don't want to box people into a point where they're so scared, they're, you know, that the children doesn't, they don't get a chance to grow or they don't get a chance to have someone come in and make their family more complete. Um, right. Because, you know, there's there, those extremes on both sides, you know, where you don't date anybody, so, you know, your kids never get to see what a good relationship is like. Because, But then they're so filled with fear, they can't even date when they get that age. And then right. you have the other side where it's like a revolving door, and the only thing the child hears from you is, I'll be back. Right. And so, right. you know, it's just trying to find that happy balance. Um when well you know it sounds like your field <laughs> is very very difficult what advice would you give for someone who might want to explore this path i would tell them first um well the the thing with with dealing with sex offenders is or dealing with anyone with any type of mental uh concerns is you have to be able to be honest with yourself in all areas of your own life. So if you have past um, traumatic experiences, uh, past abuses, um, past biases even, anything, you have to be able to call yourself out on that and and talk about it. And during the um, graduate program I did at uh, Mid-America Christian, um, one of our professors had us to go and uh, participate in therapy as a client before, uh, well, as part of one of the courses we did. And that was one of the most insightful um, things I ever did. And I'm thankful mm-hmm. that he had us do that. Uh, because, for one, being a therapist is a is a position of power. And many people don't realize that because you think, oh, you know, the therapist is um, – you know, this uh, docile person and they're so laid back and no judgment and all that, so it can't be a power position, but it is because people are disclosing 
everything about themselves in some instances to you. And to have to put yourself in that position to be vulnerable, to tell all of, you know, tell about things, that gives you insight about, for, for one, you, and then also what any client that you work with is going to go through. Also, dealing with um, sex offenders, this population is highly manipulative. If you don't set clear boundaries well, I would not suggest working with this population uh, because with any um, any opening or crack that they feel they, they have identified or they see, many of them will attempt to work on it and try to mm-hmm. figure out a way in to be to manipulate you. And it does not necessarily have to be for sexual contact, but for anything because the population um, is so focused on power and control. And mm-hmm. since the therapist is in a power position, they're always trying to figure out a way to maybe unseat that person from that power position. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say be able to, to make those boundaries, be able to stick to those boundaries, and be able to have a positive but firm communication with people. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, my listeners, we're going to take a break and pay some bills. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Lakeisha and explore how she loved through it. We'll be back in just a minute. All right, sisters, we are back, and we are getting ready to find out exactly how this wonderful therapist has given us a, a bunch of good information. We're going to find out a little bit more about her and how she was able to love through it. Um, so, my first question I want to start at, was there any particular event in your life that pushed you to this particular field and specialty? Well, there were several dynamics that worked together in my life that pushed me toward this specific specialty. Um, initially, and I'll give you the short version of the story because I don't want to take up all your time. <laughs> initially, the reason I went into counseling is because I wanted to understand why people do what they do. Because in my young mind at the time, it, people did certain things, um, and either they didn't know why they did it because, oh, it was just an accident, or they were missing something. And so it was mm-hmm. kind of like finding that one piece of the puzzle and putting it in. Uh, so I felt that um, my role as a therapist would be uh, to help them find that missing piece, put it in, and uh, voila, your, your life is fixed. Well, I initially entered um, the counseling field working primarily with substance abuse and alcohol, um, alcoholism, um, because my father was an alcoholic, and mm-hmm. one of my favorite uncles was an alcoholic and then became addicted to uh, drugs. And so I wanted to know what made them do that. Was that something um, that the person said to them to convince them, hey, this is what you need for your fix. This is going to fill in pretty much that missing piece of the puzzle. Or mm-hmm. what What were you looking for? So I did that for a time, and then I went in to begin working with um, um, batteries intervention uh, because my father, when he would drink, would also be physically abusive to my mother. Because uh, I wanted to know what what makes a person that angry. Because I thought, oh, it's just they're angry. They don't know how to say what they're angry about, so they lash out physically. Um, 
then that's when it was introduced to me about the sexual uh, offender work. And the thing with the sexual offender work is when it was initially introduced to me, um, I am a survivor, because I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor, of uh, molestation by an older cousin when I was growing up. And I never talked about that in any way, shape, or form um, until, gosh, many, 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 many years later, because I always blame myself. Mm-hmm. And so with that, when it was introduced to me, I was like, oh, no, because my bias was, at the time, you know, they all need to go run and jump in hell, because um, mm-hmm. nobody should ever do that. There was absolutely no reason I could think of in my mind that would say, this made this okay for you to do to someone. Um and I had to, even in speaking with the uh, therapist I spoke to that retired out of the field, I had to, as she told me, um, break down and process a lot of the biases and the hurt and pain that I had and the blame I even had for myself and, in a sense, shame that I had for myself. Um, and it kind of led back to when um, my professor said, hey, always make sure you have the ability to become the patient before you focus on being the the therapist. So I went to counseling for that, processed through a lot of that because after I chose to go through into this field, because I decided after speaking with her, I don't ever, if I can, I don't ever want anyone else to feel the way I felt or to have to go through what I went through. If I can, I want to help be the stopping point in some kind of way. So after I went through, uh, some therapy sessions to, uh, well, I say some, it was several, many, <laughs> to get past <laughs> my own issues and then to begin to process what I really want to do because I did not want to enter into the field with I am the person that was hurt and so I'm trying to lash back out at you mm-hmm. uh, because I don't have access to the person that victimized me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, It was very eye-opening. And then not to say that it was um, the easiest thing at first because, mm-hmm. like I you know, said before, you have to be able to call yourself on yourself because there were some sessions initially when I began that I had to stop because I was identifying too personally with it. And so mm-hmm. I had to stop and step back, you know, process it and really – identify that, you know, this is not about me. This is about um, helping somebody else uh, mm-hmm. not to become, you know, the child that I had been due to what had occurred. So it, after that point and working forward, it's just even being able to identify these folks that are sex offenders because, I mean, there are uh, they come from many walks of life. There is no specific um, uh, race, no specific socioeconomic status, uh, no specific part of the country, nothing specific you can identify that says, aha, this person could turn out to be a sex offender. So being able to discuss their mindsets and what they've come from and what contributed to their sex offenses has been really insightful to me as a person, uh, trying to help them, you know, avoid doing uh, victimizing another person 
mm-hmm. and um, insightful to myself as, you know, making me realize that the young version of me who was thinking, oh, it's just a missing puzzle piece. No, it's so much more than a missing puzzle piece. So mm-hmm. that's how would I got to say, where I am. Would you say, well, first of all, you mentioned your father and that he was not only um, uh, suffering from alcoholism, but he was also abusive to your mother. How would you characterize your relationship with your father, you and he? Um, overall, uh, initially growing or well, growing up, uh, and I would say to this day, even though my dad is deceased, um, I was a daddy's girl. Um, mm-hmm. But in really looking at that, um, I was a daddy's girl in the sense that whenever my dad was not drinking. He was the one of the best people you could ever meet. And mm-hmm. so it was, you know, he was always willing to teach me something because I learned how to, you know, fix on trucks, uh, learned how to drive a tractor, learned about, you know, gardening, learned all kinds of life skills from him. Um, however, during his times of drinking and, uh, and actually looking back on it, um, I would say he became an adversary, and that was confusing to me because mm-hmm. he wasn't the dad that that I identified so closely with. And so with the adversary relationship, I then became the protector of my mom because I felt like, you know, I I don't want her to be hurt because I know this, this person right here really isn't my dad, so I have to fight against what it is that's in him. So mm. it um it became a a constant conflict, internal conflict in mm. my relationship with my dad because I mean, literally some days I'd wake up and just have to kinda uh look out my look down the hallway and be like, Okay, which one we got today? Which one's right now? Mm. Because usually it wouldn't happen uh he wouldn't drink until the weekend. Um and if Friday he came home and it was a good good evening, like he hadn't drank. Everyone's sitting and kind of laughing, joking, or he's out piddling in the garage. Usually the weekend would kind of go very smooth and there was no need to go into protection mode. But if Friday was kind of bumpy or he didn't come home until Saturday morning, uh, yeah, that weekend was going to be a rough weekend because then it would be, you know, trying to plan ahead, uh, hey, mom, or we need to leave, or even my mom saying, hey, we're going to go spend the night somewhere, pack your stuff. Or if um, a few instances, we got caught up in some program we were watching. I remember this vividly. And we heard his truck come and looked at the clock, and it was, like, really, really late, like close to midnight-ish. And we were like, okay, turn the lights off and let's pretend we're asleep. Hmm. So that way he would, you know, maybe hopefully think either we're gone or we're sleeping, he wouldn't bother us. Um, but uh, one instance, uh, when he came in, he we were pretending we were asleep in the front room, and uh, we were folding clothes, and so he came in and he started immediately going to my mother. So I think I was around seven, maybe eight at the time. And so I had had enough. 
and I threw a basket of clothes at my dad mm-hmm. thinking that was going to do something. I don't know in my young mind what that was going to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I did it as just really a way to get him away from mom. And so mm-hmm. he charged at me, and she jumped in front of me, and he beat her. And mm-hmm. so at that point, I was just like, okay, Mom. Um, and this kind of put a divide between us for, shucks, a long time, up until my mid-teens when we finally talked about it. Because um, I was always thinking in my mind, shucks, just leave. Because as a child, mm-hmm. I don't know what's involved in the leaving process, the right. the financial, the mm-hmm. uh, physical, the emotional, the mental. I don't know. I just think, hey, mm-hmm. if something's not going right, leave. And so mm-hmm. with that, I was like, okay, Mom, you know, we can go get an apartment. I've always wanted to live over here. I was, as we would drive home sometimes or go to different places, I was like, hey, Mom, who would it be like to live over there? Or who mm-hmm. would it be like to live over there? And I'm like, this lady is not catching a hint. <laughs> so from your so, perspective, it was like your hero, who was your father, who mm-hmm. um, invoked in you serious, you know, feelings of love, but also hate to some extent and fear. But then it sounds like you also developed a a dislike or a a misunderstanding, but probably in young ages, a hate for your mother for not getting you out and her out of that situation. Right. Um, When you look back and you reflect, I heard you say also that um, you were a fighter. Do you believe mm-hmm. that that began to follow you? Like you said, um, I think you you mentioned how in your head, if it's bad, you leave. Did that continue right. in your life? Oh, yes. Did you see patterns of if it, if it got hard, you were gone, if it didn't work? Yes, of course. Um, and during my teenage years, um, I was a very um, angry child, very, very angry And at the point of, I didn't understand why I was so angry, but I was very angry. I, um, in my anger, I made a lot of poor choices that could have turned out to be harmful for me. Um, But I thank God for the protection he had around me because it wasn't. uh, Some of those instances is that, um, and also in my effort to understand my dad and my uncle, um, I met and hung out with drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And so in hanging out with drug dealers, I would ask them, hey, can I go with you to, you know, your tra- the trap house pretty much? Because I want to see what you're saying to these people. I want to mm-hmm. know what is this interaction that's convincing these people to take this stuff that they know is not going to work out well. Because to mm-hmm. me it was common sense, and it wasn't. Uh, I didn't understand the process of addiction. And Mm -hmm. so I would. They would allow me to come, and I'd talk to people that they would sell to. Um, And even in those instances, the friendships I made, I still maintain many of them. They would even tell me, hey, you know, tonight might not be a good day for you to come hang out. Or And usually those times would be when something would happen, either a fight or a drug buzz or, I mean, anything. And that, to me, was God's protection. He was allowing me to see, you know, 
part of the addiction process, even though he knew at that point I wouldn't understand it fully, but to mm-hmm. also protect me. Um, in my uh, life, I often attracted people that were in difficult situations relationship-wise. I met, mm-hmm. uh, while I was working at a part-time job when I was a teenager, I met a lady who uh, was probably about almost 10 years older than me. And she was a prostitute. And so she has worked at that part-time job as uh, as a cover and to mm-hmm. meet more people to bring, you know, as a, as John. And so mm-hmm. when she disclosed to me, and I don't, and God only knows why she disclosed that to me, that just intrigued me because at that point I felt like that's like uh, I, I had read the definition, had zero understanding of it, though, of what codependency was. And so I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is a real-life example of codependency. Oh, sucks. Let's look at it. And so mm-hmm. when I would talk to her and ask her, what is keeping you in this situation? Why would you do this? Because in my mind, I was really trying to figure out why is my mom saying. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. She was she was explaining, it's not that I have to say I want to say because of the love I feel and dedication I feel to this person. And my question to her was, and she never answered it, was, how can you be so dedicated to a person that does nothing but hurts you? And she was Mm -hmm. never able to answer that because that was really the question I had for my mom. Um, I often got into, I allowed my temper uh, to get me into situations uh, that were bad because I had a really bad mouth on me. I would uh, instigate arguments. Um, I would fight. One time a person ran from me and attempt to avoid a conflict, not that they were scared of me. I think they just didn't want to have the conflict. So for the poor choices I made, I got rubbing alcohol, uh, squished it under the door, and lit it on fire because I said, oh, you will talk to me mm-hmm. because I felt like I had to control the situation. Mm-hmm. You're not going to leave uh, without me getting the resolution that I want. Mm-hmm. And so with that, um, I had a conversation with my mom when I was probably right at 17. And she was crying and she said, look, I need you to stop this. Because she knew that, I mean, my anger was really not not the best thing for me. And she said, I don't ever want to know that you're in jail or in prison because of something you did to somebody. Because I guess she saw maybe an escalation which in looking back, I can see that as I got older and older, it was escalating uh, in mm-hmm. my aggression toward people. Um, an, another now, thing I noticed. People, I'm sorry. Was it people, because that's a good point right there. Was it people, male and female, because you had that anger for your mom and dad, and it wasn't just directed towards guys? Well, that's that's what I was going to say, The clarify the people. The people was toward females I was very verbally aggressive okay. toward males I would never back down from a physical contact never mm. as mm-hmm. as short as I am and as small as I was in build at that time I would never back down because I felt like I'm not getting ready to become my mother mm. now um as of now I will leave a situation when I feel like hey this is not going to become the best now, the thing that, um, in leaving the situation, even 
you know, I I have to talk myself through it because uh, not to go back to past memories is if this person doesn't want to just say, okay, hey, I'll leave or, okay, I'm going to let you leave or whatever without an argument or some type of conflict, not to revert back to how I was before mm-hmm. because that's do, something that, for one, I don't want to maintain or pass on. Do you see a lot of your father in you and your actions, especially when you're angry? I know that he was addicted to, you said, alcohol, and then the alcohol would lead to the violence. Do you feel at some point maybe you were addicted to getting your point across? Or or when you mentioned the word you use was control, controlling the situation? Yes. Yes, I was very addicted to controlling the situation. And my focus on the controlling the situation is, I'm not going to be victimized anymore because remember by this time in my life as a teenager, I had already also been molested. Right. So I was already a victim um, of alcoholism, uh, of substance abuse, and of um, sexual um, molestation. So at, at, at that point in my life, even though I had never said it out of my mouth, that's what my uh, actions were. I'm not going to be victimized again. You know, uh, and I don't know if you did this or not, but did you ever in your moments of, you know, gaining that control, and did you ever get so mad that you went to the person who hurt you? As far as my uh, my uh, cousin that did that, um, he moved away soon after I refused to go back to my aunt's house, because his aunt was my favorite aunt. I loved going Mm -hmm. over there. But I refused to go over there again. And so soon after that, and I say soon, maybe within two years, he Mm -hmm. moved away. And um, I don't know exactly why, if he thought I was going to report him or what. I don't know what it was. Um, But it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I actually saw him face to face and he stood there and looked at me and I assumed he was gauging my reaction or what I was going to do. And so um, he attempted to initiate a conversation with me and I told him, I hope you never do to anyone else what you did to me or that you haven't done that. Mm -hmm. And he just stood there and just, you know, I think being called out on his actions just kind of took took him aback, and um, he never responded to me though. Mm-hmm. But that was my way of letting him know I survived. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't break me, and I'm still moving forward. And so mm-hmm. that was uh, the confrontation uh, we had. Um, I finally did um, talk to my sister because I do have. Uh, one sister, and uh, she disclosed to me that she had been uh, in a similar situation when she was growing up. I had never known that either. Uh, but even in disclosing that on a instance a uh, while later, uh, maybe a few years later, she brought that person into <laughs> my presence and was like, 
hey, such and such is here because we were out at some public event. And I'm like, how would you bring that person to me? But, um, and even in that instance, I got up and I walked away. I didn't say anything because the thing I had to say has already been said and he never addressed it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you felt like she did that to hurt you? Um, I do. And, um, the relationship, uh, she and I have had from, actually from probably about the age, I was probably about eight or nine. No, it could have been seven, uh, until even current has not been a positive one. And we've mm-hmm. attempted to, um, talk through whatever the issue is, you know, that she sees. Cause I, you know, I never had an issue with her growing up. Um, she's identified, she felt that I got more than she did, and really I don't mm-hmm. see that we did have anything different. It's just we are 14 years apart, and I think maybe that contributes a lot to the disconnect, but to this day, we don't, we don't interact. Um, but was I she think there when was, your father was being abusive? She was there doing a different part. Um, when dad was being abusive, when he, well, when he and mom married, my sister was, I believe, six years old. And so mm-hmm. she was there in a time where, um, he was abusive to mom as well. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know to the extent of, you know, what she saw and what she experienced. And I can't say her experience was worse than mine because everything affects everybody differently. Right. But I know, um, while I was small, smaller than that instance with the laundry, um, my dad had hit my mom in the head with a cast iron skillet, and it cracked her skull within, I believe it was a centimeter of causing her brain damage, uh, possibly causing her brain damage. And I remember seeing her when she came home, her scalp was stapled from her forehead to the nape of her neck. Mm -hmm. And I did not understand, like, what had happened or and I think that even further fueled why are you staying like Mm -hmm, I didn't mm -hmm. know until I was older how close she was to brain damage or even death but as a child even like staples in your scalp I didn't understand so Mm -hmm. and even when mom passed away that kind of made it even more a deeper impact uh, during her autopsy, the doctor asked, well, had she recently fallen and hit her head? And, you know, the answer was no, but um, he was like, well, she has this this fracture. And so mm-hmm. um, my sister recalled, well, she, you know, many years ago was hitting the head with the cast iron skillet. And he was just, in a sense, I guess, astonished that how in the heck did she live wow. through that? Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So there was a a glimpse of your mother's strength and her desire probably not to leave you all alone. Exactly. I think in that instance where where you threw the clothes, uh, maybe she considered herself the buffer between, you know, you not becoming the next victim of your father. Right. And then for your sister, um, you mentioned that she was six years old, I think, when he came into the picture. Did she have a relationship with her father? At the time, uh, up until she was in her 20s, 
Um, I'm not really clear. I think there was like um, maybe isolated instances, but overall, I never knew until I was 12 that we had different dads. Um, because you know, daddy, she called him daddy, just like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was all I knew. I mean, mm-hmm. for all mm-hmm. I knew, that was her dad, uh, biologically. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, whenever she needed, you know, something fixed or something done or help with something, you know, daddy was there. And so, um, at 12, uh, we were getting ready to go on a family vacation. And so we were packing up the van. Um, it was my mom, my dad, my sister, my nephew was a baby, and me. And so I was asking about, you know, where are we going to go? Because we would take these drives cross-country, you know, to visit family or just to go visit different things or whatever. And so um, my mom was like, we're going to go to Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm like, Omaha, Nebraska? <laughs> Nebraska. Because uh, mm-hmm. sometimes we would go to places where we could visit, like, um, either uh, HBCUs or mm-hmm. things that were African-American history, things like that. And I'm like, I don't think, you know, black folks live in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's when my mom was like, we're getting ready to go visit your sister's dad. And I was like, what? When we, as we're driving, I will, in my brain, I'm turning over, how the, y'all just, ain't nobody want to tell me nothing. Because nothing. <laughs> I was just outdone. Um, I didn't know how to feel because I wasn't angry. Mm-hmm. I was more in shock. Like, mm-hmm. you know. Don't come and tell me that I got, you know, different parents at some point in time. Right. But, right. <laughs> right. But we got there, and um, meeting her dad, he was a very sweet person, very nice, a real tall, broad gentleman, really, really uh, awesome character. And even in that first time I met him, I was still kind of in shock because I'm like, where are you come from? Who, why?
of course, within her comfort level, because even though I feel like my mom and dad were ahead of their time, she wasn't that so far ahead that we were going to be extremely open. Um, mm-hmm. We sat and talked, and so she explained that um, all she had gone through to get into the relationship, because really she she fought <laughs> against everything um, that was trying to stop her to get into the relationship. She got uh, married to my sister's dad, uh, who was in the military. They ended up uh, going overseas. He was stationed overseas, and but he was um, he was uh, having affairs during their marriage, mm-hmm. and that's what brought the issue. Um, she didn't ever say anything about physical abuse or anything like that, so I don't know if that was or was not part of it. But I know it was the infidelity, and so. She chose to um, get a divorce, take my sister, and come back to uh, the U.S. So my sister was born overseas, but she moved okay. back to uh, the U.S. Um, and that's all I knew, ever knew about that relationship is the infidelity portion mm-hmm. as an issue. I can imagine. And so that, that kind of still stems. probably had some questions, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Especially since she had to watch what you know was going on between your father and you know and you you guys' mom, but do you you mentioned that you guys don't really have a relationship at this point? Do you think that she maybe took that anger out on you, maybe not knowing where to place it? Like you know, her life would have been different had her mom stayed with her father as opposed to getting into the situation, and she just kind of taking it out on you. Yeah, I mean, that could possibly be because, I mean, I've even tried to put myself in that situation. And I could honestly say that, you know, I could understand that because Mm -hmm. of the simple fact, hey, if mom had never got with this dude, it's not anything about me as her sibling, but if she had never got with this dude, not even the fact that, you know, my dad would have maybe been more uh, active, but she wouldn't have had to go through all the stuff she went through physically, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I can totally, totally understand that. So, yeah, yeah, I could, I could venture to assume, you know, that could be some of the, the issue. Cause I mean, I know mom stayed because of me and I think, um, with the staying, I think she knew what it was like to be a single parent cause she was a single parent for six years with my sister Mm-hmm. And so I know she knew that struggle, and I think that was a thing that she was not trying to go back to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't understand that until I became a single parent. And I was like, aha, mm-hmm. you know, that's a new insight. I got it. I understand. Well, that's a good um, segue to mention you, uh, you're a single parent. Did you – you ever get married or did you ever find yourself in a similar situation? Because I know that you say you were exploring um, the totality of who you were and, and, and getting help in those areas. How did what you grew, you grew up in, how did that affect your relationship? Well, um, relationships, let's put an X on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, with uh, relationships, I – as I got older, I reflect back and I realize I have been what I see as my mom, see as my dad, 
as the broken version of me and as the better version of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I first was my mom and when I got married to at the age of 19, which I encourage no one to ever do because uh, your brain's not fully developed, I don't think. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it on that. Um, I got married to uh, a guy that um, I had met through a friend. I was on the track of when I graduated from high school. My focus was to go to the Army. That's what I wanted to do. And in going to the Army, I wanted to um, serve my country because my dad had been a Marine. My dad was all in. My mom was like, no. So my dad pulled me to the side and said, hey, don't break your mom's heart. Don't do it. She wants you to go to college. So I was resentful about not going. I did go to college, and I successfully slunked out of my first semester. Um, mm. And, yeah, I was successful because that was also a part of my rebelliousness. Um, I came back to uh, where I, I grew up in Oklahoma and uh, married this gentleman out of rebellion again because my mom was like, oh, don't do it. And so, because she was very rebellious in trying to marry my sister's dad. And so um, I chose to do that. However, unbeknownst to me, uh, he was selling drugs in a um, in a very, mm. um, I don't know how to say, in a very, um, he was high ranking <laughs> in a okay. drug trade that okay. I didn't recognize. Even though mm-hmm. I had been around people who sold drugs and were in that lifestyle, I guess I chose to try to turn that part of me off because, in my mind, I was supposed to represent myself as an appropriate wife. And so um, during the marriage, I wanted to go back to school because uh, I decided, okay, I'm ready to stop being rebellious on that part. However, he refused, and in essence, the relationship ended due to me finding out about a small portion of the um, drugs, and then um, after getting away, I think I had left, moved out of the apartment. It had been seven days, and um, a DEA agent contacted me. No, excuse me, not a DEA agent. Uh, the uh, a mutual friend contacted me and let me know there was uh, police tape and DEA agents around the apartment that we lived in. And me being me, I couldn't believe it, so I got in the car and drove over there because this was before everybody had a cell phone. <laughs> so I drove over there and I saw the yellow tape, and I got in. I ended up getting in touch some kind of way with the DEA agent because I was scared because I thought, oh my gosh, are they looking for me too? Because I used to live here. And so in talking with the agent, he said, oh, we already know who you are, and we know that you're not involved. Um, so, no, you're not under investigation. You're not being sought after. So I was like, oh, my God, thank you. And so he said, now, if you had not gone seven days ago when you did, you would have been wrapped up in the investigation. I'm like, how do you know it was seven days ago? I'm like, sir. <laughs> so um, it was uh, it was eye-opening because he had uh, thrown bricks of drugs into uh, the car seat of the vehicle that we always rode around in. He had a white Cadillac. And I was like, so you're telling me I was sitting upon all kinds wow. of drugs? And he wow. was like, yes, it was thrown into the back seat and the front seat. I said, oh, Jesus. 
So just, you know, kind of the reality of all of that was really interesting, really, really interesting. So would you say that you're, you became blind to who he was because you were blinded by your rebellion? Yes. Okay. And um, now you, you on your own, put an S on that relationship. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so you got out of that one successfully. The yes. S. Tell us about the S. Okay, um, my, uh, I'm gonna blend two in one. Um, okay. I was introduced by one of my best friends to a gentleman that became the father of my girls. And during that, on and off again relationship that he and I had due to some concerns on his side, some concerns on my side. From our past, um, I decided to yet again be uh, uh, rebellious but uh, vengeful um, and got uh, married again uh, to a person that uh, was not necessarily the worst person, but was very manipulative. Um, that did not last long as I found out. Um, my purpose of getting married, first of all, was not because, hey, I want to be this person's wife or be in their life or have children or any of that. It was really to get back at the person that would be the future uh, father of my kids. And mm-hmm. so... um his purpose was to get his uh, citizenship. Oh, so oh. neither oh, one okay. of us entered into the relationship with pure intentions, and it didn't last long. Um, I will say, after we went our separate ways, um, he and I were able to talk, and we, you know, we became friends. And um, that friendship—I mean, we don't communicate, but we decided to have positive interactions with each other, but that's when we kind of both were like, well, you know, my real intention was when we were able to kind of, you know, be real about it. And so we apologized to each other and, you know, just encourage each other, please don't do that again because, you know, <laughs> you don't want right. to have all this negativity. Um, I, I then um, married the gentleman that's the father of my girls and, uh, that was a relationship that um, myself, him, his family, my family, his friends, my friends were like, oh, yay. And usually you don't get everybody like that on the same <laughs> yeah, road. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, the thing that, because we got divorced, the thing that took us uh, into the realm of divorce was um, he had been deployed twice. Uh, to Iraq. He had uh, trauma issues from that. And at the time, I was not a therapist. I I hadn't even began grad school yet. And so I didn't have a deeper understanding of, you know, psychology or, mm-hmm. you know, the impact of certain situations on people. So I took mm-hmm. a lot of things that were not intended to be personal as very personal. And mm-hmm. I became resentful. Um, mm-hmm. so with that being said, it kind of drove a wedge, um, 
that with even with that wedge, I never worked against that wedge to say, hey, you know, this is not about me. Because um, mm-hmm. I kind of went into the poor me thinking, like, dang, you know, finally get the get with the person I uh, should be with and this, and, you know, I just can't have happiness. I just, you know, just all the whole mm-hmm. city party situation. Mm-hmm. And so we went our separate ways, um, never had any issues. Uh, always remain good parents. Um, always uh, were able to sit and laugh and talk and joke uh, until uh, not too long ago. But um, I knew that this was the person for me. It's just I also knew I had to fix so much of me mm-hmm. uh, and address so much of me because a lot of of the fixing is calling calling it out. And I had to actually do that. And so um, allowing myself to get past uh, my own pride in a, in, in a lot of areas caused me to um, to uh, realize that yeah, that's not that's not what I what I need. Um, after we got divorced, um, I got remarried um, to someone that. Uh, biblically, we were not equally yoked, and I knew that when we first met. But I felt like, for lack of better words, he's a good enough person in that, you know, mm-hmm. we can work together. Um, he has the same work ethic as I do. Basically, just saying, look, at this point, I don't want to grow old by myself, and this will fit, you know, this will work. You know, we can we can work because um, the emotional connection that I had with the with my girl's dad, I didn't have with him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, even the family connection, I didn't have that. Um, <clears throat> it was just like, all right, let's see how this goes. And that went down a deep hole real fast. Um, he was very jealous of my ex-husband because even he, and I don't know how, and uh identified that you still love him. I was like, no, no, I don't, you know. And so, yes, I did. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that became a, a, a sticking point uh, in addition to infidelity. And in looking back in my relationship, uh, the funny thing is I see pieces of my mom and even my mom and dad's relationships in every single one. Uh, the rebellion, uh, the infidelity, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the, the, the intentions that nobody really disclosed. Um, so the, 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 the non-truth, uh, the lies really in essence. And I, and when I look back at that, I had to, I laughed at myself, like as much as I said I was not going to be like my mom, here I am looking in the mirror mm-hmm. at my mom. Wow, and so I was like, it okay, wasn't, you weren't getting the, you weren't getting the physical abuse, but there was still abuse there, right, right. And the the only reason, like I say, I don't, I believe the physical abuse was not not there in any relationship I've ever had, is because I put that out as a clear and specific boundary, um, and I'll even the words that I that I use, I'm not proud of. But I think that was the way to clarify to anyone that had that intention 
not her, is that if you hit me, I, as my dad told me growing up, if any man puts his hands on you, you defend yourself by any means necessary, and you make sure you walk away from it, even if they don't. Now, that's interesting that you said that your father told you that. My father, yeah. Yeah, he did. So do you think that he had – that this is this is twisting. You can tell me, no, she cried, cried. But do you think somewhere inside of him he wished that she would have stopped him by any means necessary? Sometimes, yes, because um, – and looking back at it, especially from the career I have, the life experience I have, and coming from those two people, at, you know, as my parents, I think my dad dealt with whatever he was dealing with because he would never disclose it, um, was mm-hmm. so heavy for him that – I think the the alcoholism was a way for him to attempt to harm himself without actually doing it, you know, as far as he would drink and drive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was his excuse to say, if I'm drunk and I have a car accident and I kill myself, then now nobody has to deal with me or I don't have to deal with me. Um I do think, especially once with the skillet incident, if my mom had done something to him or I don't think, I think that he was trying to pull something out of her to to let let, lash out toward him um, to take him out of whatever misery he was dealing with. And, I mean, still to this day, I don't know what it is, but I I often reflect on, on them and and uh, growing up with them as my parents, like, what else was I supposed to get out of that? Because um, as a child, I used to ask, you know, why in the heck, God, did you give me these folks as my parents? Like, you didn't have no mm-hmm. <laughs> And so growing up and going through life and especially the work that I do, I'm like, thank you, God, that I uh, went through a lot of the things I went through because if for nothing else, it showed me that nothing can can keep me from wherever God has me to go and for the goals I have to accomplish to get there. So mm-hmm. it gave me strength um, in so many areas um, that I can look back and appreciate now. Um, but I do think that Dad was trying to, for lack of better words, get help or get out, mm-hmm. have a way to get out. And I think that that was part of the physical abuse. Do you think that your mother may have known what that deepness was, that deep sadness was, and that might have been why she couldn't leave him or didn't want to? I think she knew, had an inkling. I don't know mm-hmm. that she knew 100%. I think she had an inkling. And in that inkling, I think um, she felt like there's some kind of way I can help. Mm. And in that want to help, she went through a lot. Because I, looking back at, you know, the person my mom it, uh, was, because she's also deceased, um, she was very much about um, helping people but her help always came with some laughs. Like, you're going to laugh while we're working on this. Mm-hmm. And I think she, with that, she just, I mean, really she had a heart for people. 
Now, anyone that knew her knew that overall she was direct. <laughs> so if you were a sensitive person, <laughs> you might not want to go get help from from her. But because <laughs> she's going to step on all 10 of your toes and off your piece of peach cobbler. <clears throat> but with her, I think it was that because of uh, – and the reason I even came to that is because uh, before um, when my grandmother – my dad's mom was in the process of passing away. My grandmother and my mom never had a positive interaction, ever. Okay. And so um, I think my mom knew that a portion of whatever dad was going through was due to his own mom. So I think in a way he, she was trying to show him a different version of what women are and what a mm. woman can be. And so in that, um, in his lashing out, I think for her to come back, uh, that was a portion of her saying that I'm not going to let whatever she did to you come between the family. Um, I'm not going to be a single parent again. And in a sense, I think she was also trying to instill in me that even when stuff is hard and horrible and all the way wrong, you need to still stay and fight. Now, were your parents older? Like, much, much older? Um, when they had me, I believe my dad was 42, and I'm my dad's only biological child, and my mom was 35. So taking that into consideration, she came from a generation, which she had already had a divorce, but which was, you know, that generation would have been a, a blot against you. In it. So I could see where they had that more of that stick and stay no matter what. Right. Now, um, we are getting to the end, but I wanted to just kind of tie back around. Um, we're not going to go into specifics. So, in total, you were married how many times? Well, do we have to put that number out there? Lord. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a reason. There's a reason. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, one, four. Is that right? Four? Five. 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 Mm-hmm. And do you believe that you would be where you are right now in the mindset that you are in right now had you not had those five experiences? Um, yes and no. And I say yes okay. and no because um, of, I, I feel like with those experiences, I had to go through them as a way to learn because um, I will tell anybody I don't take hints well. So in a dating relationship, I don't think I would have really gathered all the information about myself. Um, knowing that um, a lot of the signs that I saw, I saw while we were dating. I just refused mm-hmm. to acknowledge them because I felt like I could help them or fix them. Mm. And so that was that was a, a big issue. I had to realize, you know, I can't fix anybody, especially in a uh, romantic relationship. There's no such thing. You got to mm. take it as it is. If you can't take it as it is, then leave it where it's at. That's interesting you say that because you had just mentioned that you believe that your mom might have been in that main, that same mind frame 
with mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I appreciate all of the experiences, but um, I am glad now that I recognize that all of that does not have to happen. So then that way I can, you know, hopefully pass that on to my girls so they don't have to go through all of that. Because my mom was also married once before she married my my sister's dad. So she was married a total of three times. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any children, and it was uh, out of rebellion and really rejection because uh, my grandmother wanted her to go to college, and my mom never wanted to go to college. And mm. so she ran off and got married. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like, a, so. yeah. I think we've heard that. She's repeating herself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know. I, you have gone through a lot, and we've talked a lot, and, and it was an amazing journey to go and listen to that. Um, so, you know, I, you have gone through a lot, and we've talked a lot, and, and it was an amazing journey to go and listen to that. At the end, um, we we like to end on what got you through it. And so this is our segment that we call She Always Lives Through It. At the crux of it, at the end of it, at the center of everything, how did you get through all of this? Because you, you, you had an amazing story, and we're not going to edit a lot of it. How did you okay. make it through? Because you laughed, you giggled. There's a lot of things that there's, there, there's parts of your story had you said one thing. There's some people who have one part of your story, and they weren't able to make it. Um, and, they, and, and, and that's not saying anything wrong with someone who needed help to get through it, but what got you through? Um, the the thing or the one that got me through really was God. Even though in many instances I did not ever recognize how powerful he was because um, I will preface this in that um, the prayers of my mom's mom did a lot to protect me in my young ignorance. Um because there were even situations where um, I failed to mention earlier because I didn't even think about it. I had gone to a party, and me and my youthful intelligence, um, I dressed in all red, and it was uh, the blue team's party. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I almost the got blue shot. Team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I almost okay. got shot, and the reason. At that, the reason this comes back and connects to my grandmother, so my mom's mom, so much is because standing in the street, because we had left out of the party, there was some kind of altercation in the party. Um, I was standing there, I was looking for my friends, and I heard a friend call my name, so I turned to look at them, and at that very moment, a bullet whizzed past my ear. And I still remember the sound of what it sounded like. And in that very moment, it's almost like time froze and, like, I could hear my grandmother praying. Hmm. And uh, when I went home, um, I was still shook because, I mean, for one, the realization kind of after all the adrenaline goes down, after you get out of that situation, um, you sit and you talk about, uh, I mean, people sit and talk about, you know, I saw my life flash before my eyes, but, I mean, I literally – just kept hearing all these prayers. And so 
um, because of the person my grandmother was because she's deceased, um, it gave me a view of what a relationship with God should look like, like yeah. from the outside looking in. But I did not necessarily know how to get to where she was because I felt like when she passed away, God himself came down and said, come on, girl, I'm going I'm to escort you up the steps myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I want to get to that, but I don't want to necessarily let go of me because letting go of who I thought I was at the time would have left me vulnerable. And, I, you know, I didn't do vulnerability. And the only thing I knew about God was that you have to be vulnerable. I'm like, no, I ain't even going to be able to do that. And so with the fact that God never gave up on me, um, because he would always show up. And the reason I say it was God, because it was things that I was saved from, like even with the DEA agent, there was things I was saved from that no person could have done. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. it was, it only could have been God, because only God could, because I mean, I mean, I was living there. They knew when I moved out, they knew, they knew I was there, you know. And, um, that person could easily said, nope, she was there, bring her in too. But it had to have been God to save me from that. Um, even in um, the friends I would hang out at with uh, at their, for lack of better words, trap houses, because I hate to say drug establishments, but, uh, <laughs> you know, even when they would say, hey, you know, I don't feel like today is a good day. And during those times, uh, it's when things would happen. I could have gotten hurt or even killed then. I know mm-hmm. that was nothing but, but God. Um, while I was going to, to Langston, cause that's when I began to wrestle with God uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, <laughs> that's when, you know, even things that would happen in Langston, the people I, I met and still, you know, have friendships with and have become pretty much family with, um, I know that was nothing but, but God, the fact that as I went, he would always show me me in a situation. I knew that was nothing but God, even scriptures that would come to me um, and be like uh, confirmations of things that he had placed in my spirit. I knew that was nothing but God, the fact that um, I am where I am now in my career and the person that I am now is nothing but God because there's nothing in my past that would have ever said, hey, this uh, child is going to grow up to become <laughs> a therapist and work with all these, you know, criminal uh, justice-involved people and, you know, try to have a positive impact. There's nothing in in my past that says that even um, with organizations that I work with to help others, you know, there's nothing in my past that, ever said, hey, go help somebody else along the way. So I know it's nothing but but him, and I'm thankful for that. Well, you know, um, I can't tell you how eye-opening your story is, and I hope that it inspires someone else to uh, take a little bit more time at looking at those three fingers that are pointing back at them as they're pointing at to, you know, to someone else saying, hey, you did this. Um, because I think there's more power in it when we try to change ourselves. Um, you mentioned, and for the last, you know, at the end, you mentioned that you had some organizations. Uh, you told me about some things that you guys are doing. I want to give you guys or give you an opportunity to plug one in particular um, so that if our audience 
wants to help you guys with that, they can get that information and help that mission because I think it's pretty dope. Yes. Um, that organization is uh, called Sippin' Sisters, S-I-P-P-I-N, Sisters, and I S-I-S-P-A. Yeah. And really the organization began in 2017 with just a group of friends. We came together and we would, you know, hang out and, you know, Somebody would bring um, this one or someone would bring that one. We kind of just hang out and talk, and, you know, we just built this um, such a friendship that moved into sisters because, I mean, really, honestly, these women are my sisters. Um, any one of them can call me to this day, and even though I've moved to Texas, I'll get on the road and, hey, I'll be there. I'm on my way, and I feel like they would do the same for me, but um, we wanted to begin to help families and others that were in um, difficult situations. And so last year, during Christmas time, um, we helped the family that was in need for, I mean, a lot of everything. We all came together, contributed, and gave, you know, the family things uh, for their household because uh, it was a single mom that had small children that we helped. And so, you know, that felt awesome. And we were like, you know, how can we keep that going? So one of the ladies um, found a company that um, makes um, organic uh, wine. Basically, it doesn't have all the preservatives and added sugars from uh, many wines that people drink. And it's through Scott and uh, Cellar. And um, what uh, we do is we uh, sponsor wine tasting. And for purchases of the uh, wine, that's uh, through uh, Scott and Seller. Um, a portion of those proceeds goes back to our organization, which we then turn around and we uh, began to donate and pay off the lunch balances, the unpaid lunch balances at school because many children that are not able to have their lunch balances paid off or paid down to a certain amount, they are either not able to eat or they have cheese and bread sandwiches. And the other children know these children don't have the same lunch that they have or don't have a lunch. Mm. And so they become targets. And we wanted to help lessen that as much as we could. So um, over the past two months, I believe, especially, uh, we've been able to pay off the full balances at seven uh, schools in surrounding the Oklahoma City area. Wow. I think at last count we had raised and contributed $11,215. That is amazing. That is amazing. You know, um, wow. So my audience, how do they help you? How do they they get to get you some money? How do they sponsor or, you know, or host a a wine tape? What do they do? How do they contact you? Well, we are on Facebook. It's uh, Sippin' Sisters, S-I-P-P-I-N, Sisters, S-I-T, excuse me, S-I-S-T-A-S. We're on Facebook. There is a link on there uh, on the Facebook page to donate or to even uh, send us a message that you would like to um, do a wine tasting. Um, we would be able to uh, come and do um, 
uh, well, one of the ladies will reach out to you to identify the location. We'll be able to come out and do the wine tasting, give you background about the wines that you're tasting. Um, and it's very informative, awesome. We, um, we had a big wine tasting during the OU Texas um, event sponsored by the 405 Boys in Dallas, Texas. Uh, this past October, it went very awesome, very, very awesome. And it was very educational to many of the people that came and tasted the wines because, um, you know, I never knew that much about wine. I just thought wine was wine. You step on the grapes, <laughs> you let it sit in the barrel, and it becomes wine. I did, I, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> when you say that, my mind goes right back to Lucy. When she yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know about it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I thank you so much for your time. You have shared your time, your talent, your testimony. And, you know, as we grow, this is what it's about. It's about healing so that we can reach back and heal others. And I think that that is what makes America great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, but it not just makes America great. It makes us great and it makes us better. Uh, because everything that we need is in the body, and I believe that. And so, um, again, thank you so much for your time uh, and, and your transparency. Here at Salt Tea, we have a hashtag. So as you guys um, listen to this, I want you to shoot us a, 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 some kind of review or something that you want to say um, about the show that you just heard. It was amazing. But even more so, I want you to do hashtag SIP tea, S-I-P-P-T, and not only hashtag it, but I want you to walk it out and understand that, hey, we're all just trying to get a better understanding. I will have um, SIP and Sisters information on my blog, which is salttea.blog. Again, salttea.blog. You can also find us on Facebook. And you can find us on Instagram. You'll be able to listen to this to the show on all kinds of platforms and just look out for those links. If you want to know when the blog goes up and we and I put a new one up, just make sure that you sign up for our email. And don't forget to sip tea, which means to sit down, immerse yourself in the lesson, plan it out, put it into practice, take action, evaluate the process, and then go and acquire some more knowledge. We love you. We'll chat soon. Thanks. Mm-hmm.